Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Welcome back, everybody, to Unrestricted. And today I have the incredible pleasure, really, I mean it, Rabbi Aryeh Lightstone, the one and only former advisor to uh, Ambassador David Friedman, and also has another job called Economic Normalization, which we'll talk about. I'm not sure what that sounds. I don't know if there was anything really normal in Israel, but I guess he, he's going to figure it out. Aryeh, so wonderful to see you, and congratulations on... Uh, well, all the things you've done, we've gotten such nachas watching you and really changing the world. How many people have a chance to, to do that? So let's just jump into it right away. Let's talk about getting the job. How did you get this job? Uh, amongst the privileges of NCSY, they tell you that you have to figure out how to fundraise for your operational expenses. And uh, I was introduced to David and Tammy Friedman, well-known philanthropists and the five towns people who care deeply about the things that I care about, which is the future of the Jewish people, uh, the state of Israel, the United States of America, and uh, and how education can help uh, merge all of those things. And uh, I sent a note to David Freeman, uh, and he was uh, he was willing to take a meeting with me. And uh, I took a meeting with him, and, and we began a relationship that lasted from 2007 and goes strong all the way until today. Wow, I didn't know that. Unbelievable. That's really that's really incredible. Because of that relationship, he then he understood your your talents and your and your strengths. Because you then left NCSY, went into the educational. We won't talk about that too much. Educational <laughs> publishing, Jewish education. That's a long story. That's for a private conversation between Ari and myself. But in any event, and then then David called you. Even better than that, just just that, oh, because of our unique relationship. The very first thing that David and Tammy did for NCSY, other than writing a generous check, which was very kind of them, is if you remember, we ran this program called Jump. Of course. We're still running to today. Uh, the very first judge for Jump and the, the concept behind it was actually called The Apprentice. And I looked into my emails and saw the very first pitch book that I had for fundraise for, for philanthropists like David and you to fund this concept of The Apprentice, but for Jewish high school kids. And, uh, and David, uh, with his friend Phil Rosen, uh, brought us uh, Donald Trump as our first judge. And the very first year that we had him in 2007, uh, we had five high schools go to the finals of the competition of what was called Jump then, because Donald was the judge, so we weren't going to call it The Apprentice. Uh, we did that in the boardroom, the boardroom from the TV show, The Apprentice, and, and now President Trump and Donald Trump I uh, was very generous with his time. He gave us two, two and a half hours that day to listen to high school kids uh, talking about wanting to change the future. And I have in my room a framed picture of myself and, and, and then Donald Trump uh, uh, awarding uh, a high school group from Long Island uh, wow. the champions of the first jump program. Wow. That was because of David Friedman. I used I remember that well. I remember that very well. Wow, that was amazing. Uh, incredible. So then, so you get the job. And like, are you pinching yourself for like six or seven years? While you have the job, like, is this really true? Or, or did you get up every morning and go, am I, do I still have the job? Or what's going on? 
So, so I think a couple of different things. Number one is every morning that you woke up, worked for the Trump administration, you woke up and you double checked that you still had a job. That was you know, <laughs> sort of sort of the thing, which was great. It was private sector. If you were if you weren't performing, you weren't expected to be there, which is was was actually was great. Ambassador Friedman said something that resonated deeply with me, which was during his time working, he never once needed to set an alarm clock. And uh, and and what he meant by that was was that you just jumped out of bed every morning excited about what the opportunities would have. Now, I disagree with them. Every morning I needed to set an alarm clock because <clears throat> my last phone call wouldn't end till 2 or 3 in the morning uh, once Washington, D.C. was finally heading to sleep. And my first phone call would start somewhere, somewhere around 6 or 7 in the morning once Israel was getting up, and depending on the crisis, even earlier than that. Uh, so I needed an alarm clock because I was physically exhausted. Uh, it, we work 24, six and a half, uh, and, uh, and, but every day was exciting. And, and when you talk about pinching yourself, <laughs> uh, uh, we flew back, we, uh, we, I say we, because my wife and kids participated in nearly everything that we did. Uh, and they were, they did that because that's the kind of people that David and Tammy are, including my wife and kids and everything that they could. But, uh, I was lucky enough to fly back with Ambassador Friedman and Tammy Friedman, on Prime Minister Netanyahu's plane after the signing of the Abraham Accords, right, right before Rosh Hashanah in September of 2020. So just understand the words that I just said. Prime Minister of Israel's plane from Washington, D.C. back to Israel with the ambassador and his wife on the plane after the signing of a peace agreement on the lawn where I was lucky enough to be there and an active participant in that, to be able to land right before Rosh Hashanah so I could be home with my family. All, all of those things were things unfathomable and, and add on it was in the middle of COVID to be able right. to go do that. And I remember texting my, my wife uh, from the plane. I was upset because it was COVID space and we were spaced out. I had an economy seat and my friends were all in business or first. And I sent a note to Esty. I, th I thought it was very uh, unkind that all, all the work I put in the Abraham Accords and I'm sitting here in an economy seat. And my wife just wrote, re read back to me the text. You're sitting on the prime minister of Israel's plane direct from Washington, D.C. to Israel to arrive before Rosh Hashanah after having helped orchestrate peace treaties in between Israel and Muslim <laughs> countries, and you're complaining about your choice of seats on the plane, gain a little bit of perspective. <laughs> that was a pinch, right? Well, you, gotta, you, you have to have a little context. Amazing. So let's talk about the Abraham Accords. I mean, so I don't know what exactly, what was your role in the whole Abraham Accords? So... I like to liken my whole role through the four years as Harbona from the from the Megillah story that, that I was lucky enough to be in the room. David Friedman was as influential as he was, not just because he's bright and strategic and visionary and all of those things. He, he is and he was so what, what made him a fantastic attorney. But he, he, he was able to accomplish everything that he accomplished because of his relationship with the president of the United States of America. I could have done nothing uh, at all during the four years that I was there, if I worked for an ambassador who couldn't directly call the president or the secretary of state or Jared Kushner, the, the access to power was what was what gave David the ability to, to then become uh, fantastic because of his vision and his strategic thinking, his brilliance and all of those things. So my my success was, was proximity uh, to him. So I, I feel myself lucky just for having been in the room. He could have chosen anybody else and they all could have done it equally as good of a job I'd like to think. By the way, I don't think I've spoken to him. I don't think that's true. I think he thinks you played a very important role. So we, we are very grateful for that. So, you know, when you go through something like the Abraham Accords, which are 
just historic. I mean, you know, I don't even, we don't even even understand today the, yeah. the 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 magnitude of what that's all about. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you know, there are always low points and high points. When did you know it was really going to work? And how long did it take before you felt okay? I think we're going to get there. Uh, August 13, 2020, at 9.55 a.m., we walk into the Oval Office for the first phone call in between the leader of the United Arab Emirates, the leader of the State of Israel, and President Trump, who orchestrates the conference call. Um, and I discuss this in, in my book. They talk about that. And, and the, the phone call ends, and there's this moment of what just happened. And I think it was Stephen Mnuchin, the Secretary of the Treasury, he, he leaps from his feet. And gives a standing ovation to the president for having orchestrated this at that point coming. And at that moment, there was sort of like a glimpse of, oh, my goodness, what just happened was much bigger than any of us can possibly quantify. And that was nice. But it was the, that was a Thursday morning. On Monday morning, I'm sitting in Jared's office in the White House. And he's like, pieces of paper don't matter. Peace in between people do or does. Uh, Arie and, and Miguel, General Correa. Go figure out how to put as much as many facts on the ground as you possibly can now in the middle of COVID, in the middle of a re-election, in the middle of all of these things. And it was my job. And you, you talk about the special envoy for economic organization. It's a fancy word for saying, how do, how do we create traction for this piece? And, and when we took off on the first ever El Al flight flying from Israel to the United Arab Emirates, its capital Abu Dhabi, flying over the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, when the plane when the captain on the uh, uh, announced on takeoff, this is the first ever El Al flight flying from Israel to the United Arab Emirates over Saudi Arabia. Uh, thank you for joining us and making history. Everybody stood up and clapped on takeoff. Now I've been on planes where you clap on landing. That went viral. I saw it. It was uh, it was uh, moving, absolutely moving. And, and it was that moment that I'm like, wow. But it was when we landed in Abu Dhabi. And you saw the helicopters circling overhead, and you saw a presidential convoy taking an Israeli delegation in the middle of COVID from the Royal Airport to the negotiating hotel. I'm like, oh, this is real. This is this is big. And we walked into the St. Regis Hotel, and uh, and and we had Israelis on one side and Emiratis on the other side. And I looked around. I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to lead this delegation. Let's let's sit down and, and negotiate because you don't get a lot of training in NCSY for negotiating, you know. And and they loved each other. The Israelis and the Emiratis loved each other. And I'm like, this is this is great. Just get out of the way and let, let them let them make it happen. It was fantastic. Wow. But I'm sure even along the way, I mean, I know that I you know being involved in negotiations, there's always also a low point where like you think you're at a certain point, and then all of a sudden something happens. You go like, oh damn, I can't believe it. What was that point? So in the pre-negotiations, you know, Avi Berkowitz, uh, Jared Kushner, I'm saying I think they lived and breathed the entire roller coaster and it had loop-de-loops and, and sideways. And, and while I got briefed on some of it, I certainly didn't get briefed on the entire story. And I'm, I'm positive that there were lower points than I can even articulate. But after the signing of the Accords, while we were trying to get the momentum going, oh, my goodness, there, there were there were countless low points. I, I, I would say the lowest of the low points was we were set for the first flight to Bahrain uh, from Israel. And Israel changed its COVID policy the night before the first ever flight to Bahrain. And Bahrain had changed its COVID policy in order to allow this first flight from Israel to show up. And suddenly all the rules of the game had changed. And this, this happened at midnight. And we were landing the next morning at 9 a.m. And the renegotiation 
of what this was was I mean it caused a lot of very hurt feelings because people felt that what are you taking advantage of the circumstance for and and here became a situation where we as Americans need to roll up our sleeves and, and manage the communication between the two sides because then COVID September and COVID October of 2020 mostly unknowns a lot of public perception versus private perception, domestic politics versus international politics. And, and here in Israel, Bahrain, UAE, you have the tension of how do I protect my people? How do I promote the Abraham Accords? How do I deal with this 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 gorilla called the United States of America that wants to push this forward as publicly and as quickly as possible? And how do I balance that? And, and that, again, in, in between 4 and 6 a.m., on the day before our first flight from Israel, to Bahrain, there were words that were said that I don't believe were ever said prior to that. <laughs> and certainly, to the best of my knowledge, were never said after that. But we, we were at the point of canceling the flight and pulling off the entire first visit, which, which um, we didn't. It went and it was, it was right. absolutely uh, successful. Unbelievable. Really, really amazing. So what was the role that uh, President Trump actually played? Did he really play an active role? Or was it Jared Kushner who really ran the whole thing and occasionally the president would be briefed on this? Uh, Steve, it's it's a, it's an interesting question. You know, there's this perception: what was President Trump involved with, and what wasn't he? I I, I sat in Israel. Uh, the relationship with President Trump was Ambassador Friedman's, was not mine. Uh, certainly was Jared's, and was not mine. So for me to tell you what either of them spoke to the president about on each given time, I I can't tell you. Uh, I can tell you, I was in the Oval Office, I think four or five different times for working meetings. And it was incredibly clear that the president was not only briefed, but incredibly active in the decision-making process on U.S.-Israel policy, U.S.-Abraham Accord policy. Um, and then you, you have the overall piece, which is the president was responsible for hiring the correct people for the job. He certainly did that. Uh, he was responsible for them executing on their job. He certainly did that. And he was responsible for the results. And at least in the case of the Abraham Accords, the results speak for themselves. Five unique peace or normalization agreements in something like 123 days. Uh, and I think some of the greatest U.S. foreign policy achievements uh, in the last 50 years. And, and if you don't get credit when you're the president for that, I'm not sure what you should get credit for. And, and uh, Magi Aloud, he certainly deserves a meaningful amount of credit for the Abraham Accords. So... Obviously, you know he's running again. Okay, that's pretty. <laughs> he's out there on the uh, on the campaign trail, and uh, if he wins, okay, there's always a good chance he will win. Uh, what what does that mean for Arya Lightstone? You go back into politics, and do you take the team together, the dream team, and you put them all together again, or or that's kind of like a moment in history that's gone? Here's the greatest thing about uh, democracy: there will be a primary, there will be an election. Uh, I'm optimistic that the people of the United States of America will pick the correct person to lead the United States of America. This is an incredibly challenging time, whoever the president is, certainly if it's President Trump or, or whoever that person is. Uh, I'm optimistic that that, uh, that uh, whoever the president is, I think, will make the Abraham Accords a central focus of their foreign policy. If, if they offer a job to, to myself or anybody else, the honor of being able to serve the United States of America is the greatest honor I've ever had professionally. It's likely the greatest honor I ever will have. But I have no idea why they would call me. There's lots of qualified people around. Uh, if they did, I would jump at the opportunity. Okay, so Arya, you're finished with your position. You're working till almost the last moment. What are you doing now? It sounds like some very exciting things. What are they? 
Yeah, uh, continuing the process of creating business opportunities in between people. So Morocco, UAE, Bahrain, uh, Israel, the United States of America, some countries that haven't yet joined the accord, Saudi Arabia and others, uh, trying to find opportunities where business people, men and women, will want to do business with each other and, and create those relationships and connectivity. And there's an opportunity to make money, which is, which is great, uh, to do it in a win-win-win uh, situation and circumstance, which is something that I learned, you know, from people like you uh, when I was growing up and watching business mentors. Uh, and that's my for-profit hat. And my for-profit hat is not terribly distant from my not-for-profit hat, which is I help advise uh, or volunteer for the Abraham Accord Institute for Peace, which is a institute, I think really one of one, set up to be able to be the help desk of the Abraham Accords. The, the, when President Biden was elected, he did not prioritize the Abraham Accords. He's now hopefully coming back around to that now. But uh, on January 21st of, of 2021, uh, when the countries had a question and said, well, what, what do we do? What's next step? And the United States of America played a meaningful role. They didn't have any place to go. Uh, so it took us a little bit of time. We gave some distance for the administration to have time to be able to set something up. They didn't. Uh, and then we set up an Amuta. We set up a not-for-profit that has... Uh, enterprising, intelligent people who are there to, to be able to help the countries figure out how to create that connectivity. Peace is not built in a day. It's going to take many years of hard work to be able to get to where these relationships should be. But once again, it's always facts on the ground. That's really what does it. And uh, I know that uh, when uh, through the Conference of Presidents this past February, we had the great opportunity to go once again to the UAE and uh, you know, to go to Bahrain and to meet with everyone. And I just came away with the feeling that uh, the process is a lot longer than people thought, the, more than the Israelis thought. You know, I think the Israelis thought they're coming in, let's get some quick deals. You know, we, have, we can make some money. And the UAE were much more cautious in saying, hey, we want to make sure it works for us. We want to make sure it's going to help us. And it was like a re-education. Did I read it right or not? Now, first of all, you're 100% correct. There's so many dimensions to the Abraham Accords. Let, let's talk on a basic level, safety and security, that those, those relationships that existed have now been elevated to way beyond anybody's expectation. Now talk about uh, health and science, where there's a free flow of information between the governments, whether it was during the pandemic, whether it was post-pandemic, also working better exponentially than anybody thought. Now let's talk about tourism. The, the amount of, of, of flights, I mean, there are 12 daily flights to the UAE, one daily to Bahrain, and I think three daily to Morocco and back and forth. That's incredible. That is the ultimate deregulation of markets. Uh, so that also has exceeded all expectations. I know because each airline planned on running one flight perhaps once or twice a week, and now they're multiple times a day, each airline. So that's also a big deal. Now, now you've got the people to people in the businesses. There's not a doubt that Israel and Israelis are, are faster to pull the trigger and that the uh, Arab Muslim culture and the GCC, UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco is slower to pull the trigger. So there was a little bit of mixing and matching but you'll see that settle in. You've seen meaningful deals. You saw um, Adnoc, which is the major oil uh, and gas company in the UAE, do a deal with Numed, which is the major gas company in Israel for over a billion dollars. You've seen the pipeline in between Eilat and Ashkelon, a three-part deal in between Israel, Gibraltar, 
and the UAE, you see major long-term deals that are getting done that are meaningful. And you see, I think, probably more than a billion dollars of investment from the UAE into the Israeli tech ecosystem. But what's different is that it's later stage. You know, Israel sort of specializes a little bit more early stage and UAE sovereign funds are a little more comfortable with later stage. But that you, it's all about the get to know you process. But I, I would say if you look at this as a whole and, and you should read the Abraham Accord Institute for Peace Annual Report, if you were to tell me on August 13, 2020, after the first phone call, that where we are today is where we would be, Every single one of us would have signed on the dotted line. Every leader, every person sitting in that room would have said, wow, this is much more than we could have ever anticipated. Oh, yeah, no, there's no question about it. You see it when you go to the UAE. You see the how friendly the people are and how uh, respectful. And they really want it to work so badly, which is really, you feel you feel really great about it. I didn't, you know, we went to Bahrain. I didn't get a real feel for it. We were only there for a little while, so I don't know. And I haven't been to Morocco to to get the same sense. But in the UAE, there was no question. You definitely, you definitely felt it, and it's a, it's it's an incredible thing. And that's why I think it has legs. It's gonna it's gonna last. It's gonna survive. And you know, there'll be some bumps in the road, but you know, I'm very optimistic about where it's gonna go. So it's to really to be part of something like that, you know, which I I had the great honor of also. At the conference, when uh, we had one of the the sessions, and uh, David Friedman was there, and so was uh, uh, Dan Shapiro on the stage, and I asked Dan Shapiro, "Did you ever think this was possible?" And he said, "Well, we kind of laid the ground for it." And I was looking and going, "Really? I didn't know that because the policy changed. You guys changed the you changed the policy. You changed the thinking that you can't have peace in the Middle East without having peace." With the Palestinians, not that it's not important, very important, but it's not the only criteria. And I could see David Friedman smirking as I was asking that question. That, that's correct. I mean, the most famous tweet on August 13, 2020, was the John Kerry. I mean, John Kerry was the Secretary of State. He was the policy for the United States of America, where he was asked at the Saban Forum in December of 2016. This was the last policy statement he made on the Middle East, where he was asked directly. Is there a possibility for peace with Arab countries without peace with the Palestinians? And his line was, no, no, no. You can see it. It's a viral tweet, uh, which which I think some people probably took glee in retweeting on August 13th after the uh, after the first of the Abraham Accords was signed, and then after the second, then the third, then the fourth, and then probably after the fifth, people didn't tweet it anymore. But yeah. One of the, uh, of course, outgrowths of this entire process is the fact that you've actually moved to Israel. Now, you live in Israel now. You're not coming back to the five towns. I always drive by your street. I'm looking. I said, where's Aryeh? But he's not here. But that's it. You're you're living in Israel, correct? Well, yes and no. We were here for five of the more formative years of our student, of our kids' education. We decided not to pull them back to the States for and interrupt their education. The Israeli education system is quite different than the U.S. education system. And so they're thriving here. We, we did not want to have the disruption. So I spend a lot of my time on an airplane. I, I technically live in Florida, uh, but practically live on United. Uh, and, uh, and I'm certainly back with my family every Shabbat. Uh, but with the business I, in between Florida, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE, and Morocco, and Israel, of course, uh, I'm on the plane. Uh, I'm on the plane quite a bit. I, I would say if if we if if I brought my family back to the states, it would not be back to New York. It would be absolutely to Florida or Texas. There's there's no doubt about that. Right, but right now they're in Israel, so you tra so you travel a lot now, much more than you thought you would. 
far far more than anybody should. Forget whether I thought I should or not. Far more than I. I, I hope that I hope this this is not a permanent lifestyle issue. This is probably another eighteen months or so. Uh, again, we we live in a region where, thank God, business is still done face to face, which is wonderful. But to get that business done the first time with Israel and pick a country that Israel hasn't traditionally done business before, and we want to play a role in that. It involves a lot of face-to-face, and I like that. It's, it's, it's fun and it's fulfilling. So everybody talks about Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, a lot of speculation. Uh, what's your take on it? They're going to join the Abraham Accords? What do you think? So Saudi Arabia, I, I think we, we have to understand something pretty basic. When President Biden went to Saudi Arabia almost a year ago, to the date more or less, um, the big question was, would he shake hands? with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And in his inauguration address, he said that he was going to make Saudi Arabia the pariah nation that they should be. I, I don't know of a bigger footfall in, in American foreign policy other than deciding that we want to be friends with Iran instead of isolating Iran. Saudi Arabia is an incredibly important uh, relationship for the United States of America. Uh, the Crown Prince there it is doing more for modernity, for Islam, than maybe any person who has ever lived. I mean, meaningfully uh, important, the decisions and the the risk he's taking in doing that. And the United States of America should be bear-hugging him in a positive way at every turn. Um, And when we do not, as we have not, you see the Chinese run in to bear-hug him. And that's not just because of the oil. It's really Saudi Arabia without oil is probably less interesting. But with Mecca and Medina and sort of as one of the focuses of all of Islam, where two billion Muslims face five times a day, the leadership from there matters greatly. If they practice extremism, we've got a major issue. If they practice what I would call uh, modern Islamic positive thought, and that's a, not a technical term, so I, I apologize. Hopefully that wasn't, wasn't said incorrectly. Uh, that's great for the world. And, uh, and women driving there and joining the workforce and all of these things is great for the world. And, and how the United States of America can't be supporting him, I, I don't know. It, it, it boggles my mind. So first point is, as a U.S. relationship, we should be much stronger and closer with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The second thing is, we should move away from the fact that I have to cajole somebody to be friends with Israel. Israel is is, will be, and and should always be uh, the crown jewel of the Middle East. And if Saudi Arabia truly wants to normalize and uh, and and lead in the, the for the total Middle East, that you can't do that without being friends with Israel. So I'm saying that America should make this natural. We shouldn't have to cajole uh, countries into doing this. We should encourage it. And there's there's a big difference in between those two things. Right. No, you definitely you definitely get a sense when you go there that there's a big disappointment with the United States, as far as uh, backing Saudi Arabia, backing the United Arab Emirates when they had a problem, when they were attacked, they certainly made it clear to us that they expected the United States to do something they didn't. So there's a lot that we have to do. I want to ask you a question about the uh, Jerusalem embassy. So did you have a major role in that also, moving the embassy, or what was your role? My role my role was assisting David in anything that he needed. David, from he made it his mission to to culminate the Jerusalem Embassy Act, which was passed in 1995 by a broad bipartisan majority, uh, recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, move our embassy there, move the ambassador's house there. And, and David effectuated, Ambassador Friedman effectuated all three of those things. What, what was my job? My job was twofold. Number one is take everything off of his plate that was not essential. That way he can focus on the things that was essential. The U.S.-Israel relationship is incredibly robust. I, I think you'll, you'll read this article about how the fact that the ambassador, the current ambassador, approved the million-dollar grant, 
that ultimately is going to go to delegitimizing Israel. That wasn't surprising at all. And I don't think it was because this ambassador is malicious. It is very hard. It's, it's um, hundreds of millions of dollars of budget. Make sure, first, that we do no harm. Secondly, everything that we do is going to be productive and constructive. And thirdly, make sure that the relationship is continuously growing. To, to, to do that and to do all of the Jerusalem stuff, you, you need a team. And, and I, was, I was lucky enough that David had me as the team. So he, he assigned me to do lots of different stuff like that. And I ran to do that. And my, my goal was nothing, nothing would have to, to rise to his level until it became an emergency. And my goal was to make sure there were no emergencies. Now, within all of that, I, I had the privilege of, of helping with the move of the embassy. The, the opening day was something I, I played, a, I hope, an instrumental role in. Uh, in in the the choreography the night before the day of all of those things uh, and then uh, on constant travels back and forth there was never a group that wanted to go visit the U.S. embassy that I said no to uh, so b- er, before hours during hours after hours and getting a chance to tell David's story President Trump's story Jared's story Secretary Pompeo's story why what we were doing mattered why does it matter to the U.S. now here's an important thing we we didn't make Jerusalem the capital of Israel. We recognize Jerusalem. We recognize Israel's ability to make Jerusalem its capital. We moved. At, we moved our embassy to Jerusalem, and it's a U.S. story. It's not an Israel story, and and we wanted to make sure to articulate that as clearly as possible. And I, I took advantage of every opportunity I could to do that. Were you surprised that the uh, Tom Nides resigned? Uh, I mean, I met him a few times before he took the job and during the job, and then caught me by surprise. I, I don't know him that well. Uh, were you surprised about it? I, I read the news in, in the paper like everybody else. I sent him a note and thanked him for all of his hard work on behalf of the two countries. I think it's a hard place to be uh, here where, where this administration is clearly conflicted for what it wants to do. And I think that uh, I, I, I don't want to put myself in the hearts of Ambassador Nice. Every time I met him, he was a real gentleman and very kind to me. And I think he wanted to to, to create meaningful success here. I think that's hard where there, there, there certainly is a, a component of the Democratic Party that seems to have a fair amount of sway that, uh, that does not want to see Israel as a valuable ally uh, and wants to see leveraging and, and elevating ultimately what's a terror-supporting entity called the Palestinian Authority, which is, which is mind-boggling. Uh, so, you know, I, I credit him for getting up and every day going to work. I think also his family was in the States, and it's, it's a hard job to do without family. I know you've written an excellent book, uh, could you tell us a little bit about it? Steve, thank you. Yeah, I did write a book. It's called Let My People Know. And uh, it was written in direct response to a really entertaining exchange that happened between Matt Lee, a reporter for the AP, and uh, Ned Price, then the spokesperson for Secretary of State Blinken. Now, when you're the spokesperson for the Secretary of State, you are the voice of America to the world. And Matt Lee, the reporter from the AP, I challenged him in May and said, well, what do you call these agreements that the previous administration uh, helped to broker and helped to foster and helped to grow? And in a very painful two minutes and, I don't know, 40 seconds, uh, Ned Price turned into a pretzel, uh, trying not to say the words Abraham, of course, and he did not say them. And basically that night I sat down and I began to write the book, Let My People Know. And the, the point is, is that maybe had it not happened during COVID or maybe had it not happened under President Trump or maybe... Maybe, maybe, maybe. Life is filled with maybes. For whatever reason, people have chosen not to look at the Abraham Accords the way they would any other meaningful breakthrough in Middle East peace. I remember growing up, I was told that, uh, you know, something that was impossible 
uh, or very, very difficult, hey, at least it's not Middle East peace or brain surgery. So I certainly do not qualify for brain surgeon, but I got to watch Middle East peace happen in front of my eyes and had a chance to play a small role in its actualization. Uh, so to not embrace that, to not be excited about that, to not cheer for that, uh, it's not a Republican thing, it's not a Trump thing, it's not a Democratic thing, it's an American thing, and it's really a shame uh, because had this administration embraced the Abraham Accords on day number one, uh, likely we'd be looking at the end or close to the end of Middle East conflict. And that is certainly in the U.S.'s interest. It's certainly in our allies' interest. And as you look at a world where, where we have foes elsewhere, in addition to Iran, etc., cetera, uh, we have to go ahead and we, we, we have to take care of our challenges where we can and to create a Middle East where from UAE to Bahrain to Saudi to Oman to Israel, we've got unlimited power, unlimited space, unlimited people, unlimited intellectual abilities, uh, unlimited potential cooperation. We have at that point in time a fantastic hedge to try to push back against the Chinese and their belt and road. You, you know who sees it the other way? The Chinese see the opportunity of a unified and meaningful Middle East, and, and they see that road runs through Iran. That's not a good vision. When we retreat from a region, it's not like the Canadians or the British move into that vacuum. It's the Chinese, it's the Russians, it's the Iranians. Uh, so we need to celebrate the Abraham Accords. We need to invest in the Abraham Accords. We need to promote the Abraham Accords, and it needs to be bipartisan. Uh, maybe it needs to be without any partisanship. Uh, and for that reason, I wrote the book called Let My People Know. I want people to know how incredible the Abraham Accords are, how they will change not only Israel and the Middle East, but also the United States of America. So uh, get the book, let my people know uh, on Amazon or anywhere else. Thank you, Steve. Okay, so the last part of the uh, interview, I do this thing called the lightning round. I just ask you some quick questions. Give me the first thought that comes to your mind, more or less, uh, and then uh, let's see where it goes. One, who's the greatest person you ever met? Oh, no. Uh... <laughs> Uh, who's the greatest person I ever met? Uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Okay, great. Okay, so one person in the world that you would like to meet that you haven't met yet? Prime Minister Modi from uh, India. Uh, okay, okay. And what about if you had to go back in history and you could meet anybody in history, who would it be? Abraham. Because of the Accords, you want to? <laughs> no, there, 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 there's, there's a misnomer that, that, that the Abraham Accords were named because... We're all children of Abraham, which is true, and that's what we tell everybody. Look at the world before Abraham. It was a world of idolatry, and it was a world of paganism. Baloney that people didn't know that there was paganism and, and idolatry. They knew that these things didn't work, but it took one person with guts to say what we're doing is not the right thing, and he changed the entire world for all of history. I, I can't imagine how lonely that would have been. That's not a lightning round. I'm sorry. Keep going. I, Abraham. I, no, that's okay. That's great. What about the best speaker you ever heard? Um, Nikki Haley. Okay, good. Besides your wife, and I'm going to add one more name because I don't want it to be so easy. Besides Ambassador Friedman, if you were in a foxhole, who would you want with you? My brother. Okay. Okay. He, does he live in Israel? He does. He, he just made Aliyah uh, this, uh, this past wonderful, year. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Who's the smartest person you ever met? <laughs> I work with all these geniuses. I don't know. David Friedman, Mike Pompeo, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, J Jared Kushner. I don't know. These guys are all much smarter than I am. Okay. What about the most intimidating person you met so far? Oh, President Trump by far. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Of course, you know, you learn a lot. What's your favorite safer? 
Oh, uh, right now I'm reading a safer and I'm, I'm going to be embarrassed. I forgot the name of the author. Is it Rabbi Goshetzion, who's right, who wrote a safer on understanding uh, Shimon Asrei, uh, the Shimon Asrei, and it's 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 eye opening. I can't tell you how many times I've said the words and not known uh, what it is that uh, that I've been saying. It's fascinating. Uh, the name escapes me at this moment. Great safer. Okay, what about your favorite tefillah? The, the tefillah that you say on the regalim that you ask for but when you take out the, the, the after Hashem Hashem, that special tefillah there, oh, yeah, that, right. that's it's good. I think Shlomo letter. Katz has a song there. Yeah, the right. Love. yeah. Right. What about your favorite Shabbos Zemiris? Oh, I wish I had a good voice. Uh, but Komikadish. Okay. I like other people singing it. Okay. What's your, what's your favorite Chag? Uh, Pesach. Hands Pesach. down. Easy. You know, almost everybody says that, by the way. Two final questions. One, one place you'd like to go that you haven't been to yet? Um, I'd like to go to Monaco. Monaco. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Very, very good. Well, listen, you know, Arya, we can go on and on and on, but I know that... Uh, I know people Wait, are, I'm people... going to have you ask me one more question. I'm sorry. What is the most exciting place to go today? Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Okay. It's the most, it's the most exciting place in the entire world to go really? today. What, why is that? And, and I'll tell you why. Go ahead. Because they're more excited about tomorrow than yesterday. It, it's, it's in the DNA of Tel Aviv. But they're not upset about today. They are more excited about tomorrow than yesterday. It is a, it, you would never think that with Saudi. I mean, it blew my mind. More excited about tomorrow than today. Go to Riyadh. You'll get super energy. You know, I've been there. It's amazing. Unbelievable. Listen, thank you. Thank you so much, Aryeh Lightstone, uh, who uh, accomplished so much and is a young man and will accomplish much more. Thank you for coming on my program, Unrestricted. And best of luck to you and to your family. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savisky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.